Hope and Patience with Amelia Rope, a podcast about business, well-being and chocolate. Hello and welcome to our latest episode of Hope and Patience. It's wonderful to have you here. I hope you had a fab Christmas and happy 2021. If you're new to the show and enjoying the recent episodes, don't forget to dip into the archives. We've had some amazing guests, all with something to share with you. Today, we are off exploring what it's like to be at the helm of an award-winning family-owned organic dairy and farming business. Their impressive accomplishments include a partnership with farmer-owned Arla, one of the largest dairy suppliers, winning not one, but three of the highly sought-after Queen's Awards, and have a multi-million pound turnover to match. With their strong value system and commitment to the environment, animal husbandry and support their local communities. They're an example of an authentic business which has achieved great heights but remained fully earthed to its roots. Our guest today is the visionary Tim Mead, chairman of Yo Valley Family Farms. Tim is the son of pioneers, the husband and wife duo, Mary and the late Roger Mead, who began their entrepreneurial journey back in the 1960s with a tea room, pick your own fruit and making yogurt with leftover milk from the clotted cream which they sold locally. Their brand is extended to Yo Valley, Yo Valley restaurants, Yo Gardens and the Canteen, Ice Cream, the Music and Food Festival Valley Fest, and finally Yo Valley Associates where they help small businesses. Their charitable arm includes supporting Farmlink, Key for Life, Yokens and much more. So on with introducing our guest and to hear their story, welcome to H&P, Tim. Good morning. Tim, would you be able to share the story with us about how Yo Valley came to be what it is today? Absolutely. My parents got married when they were quite young and they were about sort of 20 and 21. And my father was from a farming family based probably only about eight miles from where we are. And at the age of 22 and 23, they decided they wanted a farm on their own. So they went off and secured a mortgage from the NFU and bought a dairy farm at Holt Farm, which lies on the edge of Blagdon Lake, which is in the Yeo Valley. And I guess for the first five or six years of their married life, they they basically set about trying to turn the farm into something that would be able to support them and their, their family. And it became pretty apparent, I think, to my father that if he wanted to remain a dairy farmer, he'd have to diversify and try and add value to the to the products that he was producing, which was which was namely milk. So, you know, around sort of 1970, he started looking into various different ideas of products that he could make from either, you know, so they were t- traditional mixed dairy farmers. So they had cows, they had sheep, they had beef, they had some corn. And basically, he sort of looked at all of the, 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 the things that were being produced on the farm and decided that he was going to become a yogurt maker. And um, I've become a yogurt maker's son. So um, there, is a rest, there is a rest of a ditty to that. But um, I'll leave that up to everybody to, to determine what <laughs> that could be. So I think in the last 50 years, there's 150,000 dairy farmers who are no longer dairy farmers in this country. You know, wow. we've shrunk, we've shrunk down to about something like eight to ten thousand dairy farmers in, in 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 Britain now, and all of those farms over the last fifty years have all got bigger. So effectively, we produce the same amount of milk as we did fifty years ago as a country, but 
on every dairy farm, there's really five times more cows and the cows produce about twice as much milk. So anybody who's good at their maths will be able to work out that that produces the same amount of milk. So, Tim, how did your parents take it? How did your mum and dad take it from being purely Holt Farm into what Yo Valley became in the 90s when you took it on from after your um, dad's tragic accident? So I mean, basically, blood, sweat and milk, I think is very good. You know, there's no sort of when you're starting a small business, there's not people who can help you out because you can't afford, you know, the consultants or you can't afford the advice. You've basically intrinsically in people, there are entrep- some people are entrepreneurs. And I don't see myself as an entrepreneur. But my father was definitely an entrepreneur. He would, you know, he, he, he worked out the idea. And then he worked out how to build a factory, how to get vans on the road to take the product where it was going to do, how to make the product. And it really comes from a large sense of, you know, energy and passion in in what you're doing and determination. And also, you know, in a lot of cases, it comes out of pure necessity from, you know, wanting to be able, you know, if, if the option of not making a success of this farm that my parents moved to was that they would have to sell the farm and move somewhere else, then there is a huge amount of stick as well as the carrot of potentially trying to, you know, create a business that can provide for you and your family in a way that you'd like. And so in the 90s, how did you develop the business? They bought the farm next door, is that right? And then how did it grow between the early days and the sort of late 1990s, early 2000s? I mean, I think people look at our business now and go, well, you're one of the only sort of private family businesses in, you know, with brand in the top top 100 UK brands and things like that. And they look at us and go, well, you're, you're, you're huge. But it's been a really slow and steady process where, you know, we intend to be here for a very long time and you make your decisions that means that you don't risk too much. So you become vulnerable and therefore have to sell out or go bust or whatever happens. It's It's been a slow and steady process. But it's also mirrored over that sort of 40 years what's happened in the rest of in the rest of industry. I mean, there used to be 40 or 50 large people that you could sell your products to. You know, there used to be sort of 20 or 30 chains of supermarkets. Now, 80 percent goes through the top four or something like that. So in, in those days, there were lots and lots of yogurt makers. There were lots and lots of retailers and things were done on a sort of smaller scale. What we've managed to do is be the last man standing in terms of being a private yogurt making business. So effectively, we've kept our head down, um, not taken too many risks and um, are still in the race. Very much in the race. Did you both imagine that it was going to grow as big as it did and also to have the skill set to create it? I guess at this point, I have to reveal that I'm a chartered accountant. Um, oh, are you? And that I possibly am not the out and out entrepreneur that my father was so my father's ability to through sheer energy and determination and strength to take an idea and against all odds make it actually happen my early career was um failing to go to university due to sort of stupidity and messing around at school um (laughs) then i had to pay the price because you know if you couldn't have a degree Chartered accountancy was something that you could do without a degree, but still, at the end of it, was probably better than a degree. So I did my four years training as a chartered accountant. That's not to say that accountants know everything, but 
as an accountant being involved in a family business, you just know where you are. You know the relationship between profit and cash. You know long-term investments. You know how to structure things to be effective. And so it just, it gave you a certain confidence that to allow you to run the business in a way that, um, that you know, possibly you wouldn't if you just didn't have that sort of complete knowledge of your financial situation. That must have been a real asset for you to be a numbers man, I would have thought. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then and then and then the absolute key in, in our business was to surround yourself with people who are good at their job. So, you know, at the age of 25, when I sort of really took over the business, you know, I managed to get people involved and passionate about the business. And all of us spent a good 25 years basically fulfilling the roles that we had within the business, whether it was the engineering or the technical or the sales or the production or the operation side. We had some really good people who shared in the vision of what we were trying to achieve. And you just get stuck in and opportunities come along and you go, you know, you measure them up and then then you potentially just go for them, really. It's not very sophisticated. Do you think that the vision has changed significantly from your father's original plans or would you say that you just sort of implemented them and then sort of massaged them, grew them? He was what I call a nagsman. He was um, exceedingly good at riding horses. And I think the analogy is that it's horses for courses. So his ability to be an entrepreneur and then my ability to take something that was, you know, you sort of knew roughly where you were going and then sort of fine tune it. So he probably wouldn't be interested in particularly the running of a business that has got more structure than he would have enjoyed. So he was sort of, you know, energetic and running a business with, you know, 1800 people, you know, you need huge amounts of structure and discipline and stuff like that. He was more entrepreneurial and maverick. So I think it's horses for courses. You mentioned that you're a custodian of the land. And your family have been farming for over 500 years in Somerset and I think 50 years in Yo Valley. Do you see your children taking over the mantle like you did? Did you feel obligated to take it on? And would your children feel obligated to take it on? I think it's it's difficult, isn't it? So, you know, I was 25 when my father, unfortunately, died in, a, in an accident on the farm. Mm. And that basically puts a massive great rocket up you um, mm-hmm. on the basis that the responsibility of of the custodianship of handing it on to another generation or to looking after the, the generation that you that, that was there, like my sisters and my mother. So suddenly that responsibility sort of suddenly became 100% and truly mine. Whether that is something that wants to be passed on to my children will be up to my children. Yeah, you want them to go and do their own thing. You want them to express themselves and to be involved in things. But eventually you want them to get enough life skills and the life knowledge mm-hmm. to be the custodian of something that, you know, I think is is really quite important. Absolutely. How has it affected dairy farmers with the trend to replace milk with plant-based milk? Especially, I think the plant-based milk is especially popular, isn't it, with the younger generations. Has that affected Yo Valley at all? If you look at the trends around the world, I mean, there's a whole thing about where do the calories of your food come from? And since the Second World War, the vast majority of calories have come from artificial fertilizer, synthetic chemicals and things like that. And that's just the way it is. You know, we came out of the Second World War. There was rationing in Europe, you know, all the nitrogen factories that were producing nitrogen for all the armaments and explosives for the for the war stopped making 
gunpowder and explosives and that was able to make nitrogen fertilizer which basically got us out of a situation that we were you know had food rationing across across most of europe mm-hmm. the unfortunate thing is that has just continued and we've ended up farming in a way where you know there were two revolutions there was the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution so industrial agriculture doesn't sit comfortably with me so the ability to go and produce food in an agricultural way where you're building the fertility by rotating crops and things like that is 100% for me the correct way to go so when people say we need to stop eating all this mass produced meat i 100% totally agree with them i think producing mass produced meat is complete you know pork and chicken is completely reliant on producing mass produced grain and mass produced grain comes from artificial fertilizers and therefore the energy for all that comes from oil so that is totally in my opinion as a supporter of organic regenerative farming is completely the wrong way to go when you get to plant milks the statement that says that eating we all need to eat a more plant based diet i believe is 100% correct mm-hmm. um because i believe eating you know industrial farm chicken and pork at huge quantities is one of the sort of major problems but plant milks don't fall into the category of necessarily the right way so there was recently the peter melchip memorial lecture which i think the title was ultra processed foods how it's stolen a generation and in france they consume 15% of ultra processed food and in the uk we consume 55% of ultra processed wow. food so when somebody says eat a plant based diet i look at sprouts or cabbages or carrots or apples or pears or things that we can grow in sort of in in sort of northern europe what i don't look at is you know so plant based milks are probably one of the most ultra processed foods that you possibly can have so you take two almonds you put it into a liter of water you smack it into lots of packaging you ship it wherever around the world and then mm-hmm. you put it in the refrigeration even though it doesn't need it and then you claim that um it's a way of um helping the environment which to me is totally and utterly sort of outrageous and then if you look at all the companies who are behind plant based foods i think the average size of these companies are i don't know 50 billion pounds or whatever if you look at the other products they produce you know sort of fizzy drinks and all that sort of stuff all the main culprits of the sugar issues with obesity and everything like that of providing those products to consumers are right and truly behind the massive growth of plant milks so i don't want to be a, a moany wingy dairy farmer but i love carrots i love i love sprouts i love plants i like plant based food but i think it is it is a complete misnomer to make out that plant based milks are the solution um when basically they're being produced by monoculture products all around the world when the reality of regenerative organic dairy produced products are that you know from a localized area in you know in northern europe we've got plenty of land that can produce produce lots of grass and cows are really really good at you know reducing um and converting grass into nutritious food so i think you've got to look at the regionalization of food production across the world you know soya almonds you know they're not great for being grown in the uk whereas we got lots of grass and 
the answer to the grass-based thing is that as regenerative farmers, we lock up more carbon in our 2,000 acres than the output is is accountable for, for the production of the milk. So it is more than possible to farm in a way to reverse climate change and produce healthy and nutritious food. I mean, some of the things that you're doing in your farms is incredible with the elephant grass for biofuel. And then also, um, I was reading that your milk bottling plant runs off solar power, which was, I think, one of the one of the reasons why you won one of your many Queen's Awards. But tell us a little bit about that, Tim, what you're doing on the sustainability side. I think sustainability and eco-friendly and carbon zero biodiversity is another one that people chuck out there and yep. they say, well, we're all we're all for biodiversity but what does biodiversity mean then there's you got new phrases like bioabundance there's no point in having one butterfly you need lots of butterflies so biodiversity means the number of species and bioabundance means how many of those that you've actually got and what everybody does is they focus above the ground they focus you know the the nice stuff the lions the you know the, the the hares, the the owls, the the bumblebees, all of that lovely, you know, which is beautiful. I mean, I you know I love all of them, but as organic farmers, it all starts below the ground. It's about the health of your soil. It's about the microbes in the soil. It's the insects. It's the the living bits of the soil. Because if you don't get that right, then nothing above the soil will um will 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 survive. Um, and so. This whole focusing on, you know, the lovely, fluffy bunnies and bits and pieces is is all great. But as an organic farmer, I just wish that people would would, you know, how how do you make soil sexy? I mean, how do you how do you explain to people that that soil is the is the answer to reversing climate change? Soil is the answer to producing healthy food. Soil is the answer to you know stopping floods and climate change and all those sorts of things um and it, and it's a really tough ask and you know if there's one thing that we're going to do as a business for the next 10 years is to seek out the holy grail of how do we allow people to realize that if everything below ground is done properly then everything above ground will follow and be as 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 healthy as as as, as it possibly can be in a way, it's a bit like looking after oneself, because if you look after the internal workings of your body, then externally, you should be okay. Yeah, absolutely. And people don't quite get the linkage between, you know, so Rudolf Steiner, um, you know, his whole philosophy was based around how the quality of food produced from the quality of soil relates to the health of a nation um you know there's huge studies that say that you know kids in cities are you know are suffering asthma is like a rising trend because people aren't getting dirty and muddy and you know so the relationship between the microbes in the soil and the microbes that would be on your food and what we're actually ingesting as in a, in a modern world is is causing all sorts of health problems um and therefore soil is a living breathing thing that has a relationship with the plants and the animals above and sadly too much cement has been plastered on it (laughs) 
Well, that's me living in a city. I look at it and I now, especially after the first lockdown, I just thought, wow, all these roads, you know, okay, they're tarmac, but um, yeah, soil is is the essence really, isn't it? So Tim, on the packaging side of things, what are you up to with um, trying to get that all recyclable? We have a very simple target with the... Um with any plastic that we use to package products. Um, and there is a dilemma between, you know, packaging things in a way that means that there is less waste and that they can get to the consumer, et cetera, et cetera. But what, we, what, 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 what our target is, is to ensure that all of the plastic that we eventually have within our business is made from 100% recycled mm-hmm. and is 100% recyclable. So if you, if you create these loops of, products um then that is the most efficient um low carbon way of of getting food from a to b in bits and pieces i think the um, ellen MacArthur foundation have just issued a, a huge report out that you know basically explains all of the the sort of the loop systems that are happening now within the within the sort of the packaging world so, um, Tim, I am a business mentor for um, the Open the Gate program, which is part of Fine Cell Work. And um, my role as a business mentor is to mentor ex-offenders to try and support them to find a job when they have come out of prison. And I heard um, the inspirational story on BBC Radio 4 Saturday Live with the Reverend Richard Cole about Liam and the chance that you gave him through um, Eva Hamilton's Key for Life. So I think Sarah, your wife, was involved in this, but would you tell us a bit more about Liam's story and how you have given him an opportunity that seems to have got him right back on the on the straight and narrow and, and really sort of reaping the rewards as a result? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the Key for Life programme basically focuses on... I guess guys between the age of eighteen and twenty-five um, who've got themselves into trouble and have been allocated a prison cell for a period of time, and it's how, when they come out of that, do you break the cycle of reoffending? Um, and I think the reoffend—I'm not quite sure what the numbers are, but it's like a seventy or eighty percent reoffending it's rate. High. Yeah. Um, and you know, what is it that you can do, and how do you mentor those people so that they realise that? Actually, there's, there, there are other options. Um, and it's all very well for me to say there are other options. But when you find yourself in the desperate states that a lot of people find themselves, the option of getting yourself into trouble is something that sometimes is just too, too, too big to avoid because it's, it's about hunger. It's about, you know, it's looking after your family. It's looking after your, you know, your siblings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so I think the, the, the simple pro, program is, is that if you take somebody who has experienced an awful lot of that um, for a long part of their life and they've got themselves into trouble, then the mentoring part of that is basically allowing you to intervene in situations whereby they would not basically continue in their employment or wherever they found themselves so the transgressions that you will find potentially means that you know if somebody doesn't turn up three days out of five or whatever it might be for reasons and what you've got to do is sort of override the rules of normal life knowing that you're trying to nudge them to a place 
where eventually they then operate in a way that fits you know society's norm really liam is great but i mean you know when he first when he was first working for us you know because he might might have needed to sort things out or it hadn't mattered to him in the past you know whether it's attendance or behavior or whatever it was and then slowly the whole mentoring and the mentoring is not just my wife but sarah's done an awful lot it's you know you pick the people that they that they are working with Mm -hmm. you know because you want everybody to be an influence and eventually if 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 the group of people that you're working in and socialising in and whatever have got values and thoughts and ideas, you sort of tend to begin to take those on yourself. And, and Liam has done that, you know, remarkably well. So, Tim, who or what has been the greatest influence, would you say? Well, I think my parents have both been, you know, my father, when he was alive, you learned the... You know, he was he was a fun-loving, large character, cracked on and just realised that, you know, you could do stuff, you know, that you could just get on and do stuff. Um, and then my mother has also, you know, for the last 30 years has been, you know, a guiding hand, um, as have all of my family, really, my wife, my sisters. Um, you know, generally, you know, we're, you know, you, you, you sort of get inspiration from people, don't you? And my mother is a very wise and clever lady. Um, But she's also, you know, she's also clever enough to know that, you know, you've got to tell people just to get on with their own lives. We probably should have had Mary on with you. I didn't think about that. And now I'm just sitting here thinking we should have done. What have you learnt um, about yourself from running the business or being involved in the business well, I suppose I was a bit of a slow starter, really, at school. I was not particularly academic, mildly dyslexic. I think it's about being slow and steady, but also, you know, there's got, there has got to be an edge. We have a sort of expression, it's like, well, is this one of those moments where we just got to kick the bloody door down? And what that means is that if there's something on the other side of the door that you want, then sometimes, you know, knocking politely ain't going to get it. Sometimes you just got to put your boot in and walk through. And that's that's just life. You know, you can't avoid it. You know, there'll be other people wanting what you want. And if you want it bad enough, sometimes you've just got to muscle up and go for what you want. And that's 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 sort of not probably uncharacteristic of myself, I, I would think. <laughs> I'd like to think. But, you know, what I do know is that sometimes, you know, when the tough when it gets tough or whatever, you've just got to really knuckle down and 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 do what's got to be done. So that leads me to the question of what do you think has challenged you most so far? I would think possibly marketing. If you look at the broad broad spectrum of stuff, okay, as dairy farmers, as the son of a dairy farmer, you know how to weld up a shit scraper, you know, tractor <laughs> or whatever, you know, because you, you're doing it when you're 12 or 14 or whatever it is. So making things, installing boilers, building factories. As dairy farmers, you've got to keep your milk clean. So the whole technical side of making products is is sort of ingrained. You know, buying things, farmers like like a deal and flogging stuff, you know, you know, you can get the sales angle. You know, some people just buzz off selling stuff and for them the sale is everything. Um yeah. and therefore within all of the, the, the disciplines of our business, whether it's technical, engineering, manufacturing, selling, whatever, accounting, it's, it's like, you know, it's faxed. One and one is two. And, you know, somebody says it's three, then you don't believe them because it's not true. 
But with marketing, bloody hell. I mean, anybody could do what's right. And it's like, you know, there's all these phrases, isn't there? Like, you know, oh, well, 80% of the money's wasted because you don't know which bit's working. And, yeah. you know, I mean, it is fluffy, load of old, you know. It is fluffy, but the thing is that we all need it. I mean, I, th- I see it as just holding your finger up to the breeze and just sort of seeing where the wind's coming in for, from. I Marketing is challenging. And I think nowadays there is so, everything moves so fast. You've got all the social media side of things that when you set up, and certainly when I had my chocolate business in the early days, we didn't have to do all that side of it, which it was more sort of sending chocolate bars off and hoping that you get mentioned a in a paper, which was a, a breeze compared to what happens now. Now, Tim, we are revving up for the chocolate break, which is always when I pep up. Um, but we've got a quick fire round, first of all. So optimist or pessimist? Optimist. Introvert, extrovert, or an ambivert, which is a mix? A mix. Perfectionist or non-perfectionist? Severely perfectionist. Early bird or night owl? Definitely early bird. <laughs> okay, so the chocolate break. Tim, have you got your chocolate of of choice by your side? I have. So you tell us why that we're about to tuck into the crunchy bar. Because it's not a lot of chocolate. Um, and I don't know whether this is true or not, but I think most chocolate tastes a lot worse than it did 20 years ago. Whether no, that- Tim, that's not true. Whether it's because I've—I don't know. Okay, all of the standard brands. So because because the crunchy is only covered in a coat of chocolate, mm-hmm. you're basically getting the honeycomb, really, aren't you? Um, mm. But I think so, you need to revisit some different chocolate brands, maybe. I know that I think it's, lots, it's lots upped its game. There are lots of new chocolate brands coming through, but you know, personally. <laughs> I don't know, Stick to the original. But did you know, I, when I was researching this bar, it was originally launched in 1929 by J.S. Fry & Sons. And funnily enough, the other bar that was on the potential list that I rushed out to buy and hadn't eaten for years, so I was almost willing you to pick that, but you've picked this, um, the peppermint, wasn't it, the peppermint cream. That is also by J.S. Fry & Sons. So you must have been one of their sort of, Babies, I suppose. Who who were based in Bristol. Ah, so local. Oh, I knew somebody who worked there, and they probably used to bring home lots of free chocolate or something like that. Okay, back to work, Tim. What are your thoughts on success and failure? Well, I think if you do your best, you know, that's all you can ask for people, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And different people's judgment of success and failure. So people look at our business and they go, oh, it's a really big business. 25 years ago, we set out to try and, we'd try and get... 10% of all British dairy farmers to, you know, become organic dairy farmers just because we felt that from a community point of view, from a knowledge point of view, it would be a great thing. 25 years later, we're only halfway there. But so is is half a billion litres a success or is it a failure? Because we were, you know, we were looking at um, trying to get a billion litres or will the billion litres be achieved within the next 10 years? I don't know. Are you still after achieving the billion litres? Absolutely. We would love it if one in 10 dairy farms in Britain farmed to organic regenerative principles, because that is that would have an influence on all farming. It would, you know, it would be great. And, you know, uh, you know, so the Rodell Institute in America have just come out with a massive claim, which I think everybody's shooting them, shooting them down on, is that if the world farmed in a regenerative organic way, then we could 
we could sequester all of the emissions of CO2 that we produce as a world, which is an amazingly large potential claim. And what we're going to do in our business is to try and encourage all of our supplier farmers, where at all possible, to adopt regenerative agriculture approaches and set about trying to reverse climate change. You know, whether we will, whether we don't, we'll, we'll know in five and ten years' time when we measure the, the increases in soil carbon. We had uh, Tessa Clark from the Olio app on the show earlier on, and they are about redistributing food surplus. Um, so that if you've got, and it's individuals doing it, so you might have two tins of tomatoes that you don't need. And so you put it on the app and your neighbour would think, I need those two tins of tomatoes. It's it's phenomenal. But they were saying that one of the biggest things contributing to climate change is food waste. Well, I think food waste during the initial lockdown. So food waste, they reckon, is running at about 30% in the UK. Okay, It's crazy. Which is outrageous. But the more places that you can buy food, the higher the waste there will be. So when everybody was in the initial lockdown, they they reckon that food waste reduced by 70%. So it went from 30% down to 10%, which is a phenomenal thing. And, you know, so in our house, we had, I think we had, we had seven people, seven days a week having three meals, which is... Um, That's a lot. You know, so 150 meals plus all the snacks in between. <laughs> there were probably... 200 meals being prepared in our house on 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 a weekly basis um and therefore was there ever a chance that anything was going to get wasted no, no. you know everything for the next day was eaten for breakfast or you know bubble and squeak or you know so you can see how that if everybody basically had all their meals at home then 20 percent of 70 percent of all food waste would disappear completely yeah. Okay. So back onto failure. So you're talking about success, and really that is the thing of getting more organic dairy farmers on board and producing your billion liters. What are your thoughts on the word failure? Yeah, I think there's lots of sort of management bits about you've got to fail a few times to learn a few lessons, or I don't really subscribe to that. I just think as long as you do your best, then it's not really regarded as failure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Onto your well being, Tim. I found as a founder that I neglected my well-being. So I'm always interested to see what other founders do to look after themselves. You, How important is incorporating well-being into your day? I guess, to be really honest, at the age of 50, I possibly hadn't been focused. You know, you're so busy with work. Yeah. You know, you're getting up at four, you know. So for the first 10 years, like you're getting up at five in the morning and going to bed at midnight. And that's all you're doing. Um, then you get, you know, and then that continues for a period of time. You're driving all over the country, you know. So at the age of 50, we sort of, you know, when I realised I'd been doing my job for 25 years, um, and we started the, you know, so I'm no longer, you know, actively involved in the day-to-day -day management of the business, um, although I am chairman. Um, we've gone through a transition in the last five years, Um where we've got, you know, all the guys who worked with me for 25 years, you know, we've all re redeployed ourselves into different roles, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because you want to, you know, you you want 35-year-olds running around the country, you know, driving up and down the motorway, flogging things to supermarkets and all that sort of stuff. You know, there's only so long you can do that. Um, so in a very small way, I sort of took up cycling, which is, um, 
know, your classic, you know, mammal or whatever they call them. Um, but we sort of do sort of mountain bike riding on the Mendips and around that area with a group of friends. So, you know, so I'm relatively active, get outside. Um, but like most people, probably drink too much um, and possibly could eat less and do more exercise. So it's one of those... <laughs> One of those school reports could do better. I was going to say, I used to get that. So I used to win the progress prize because it would always say could do better. And in the last term of the year, I'd shoot forward and work really hard. And so I get progress prize. But um, do you, when you were immersed in the business, Tim, did you find that you were really stressed and pressurized by it? And if so, how did it affect you sort of mentally, physically? I don't know. The only thing that really stressed you, so I'm, 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 I'm very good at, keeping things in order so at the end of every day i make sure that i've got not got an email in the inbox and i've got nothing you know quite often you just delete them or whatever um or you move them to the to-do box <laughs> yeah, but, you move them across <laughs> but you know so mentally you're knowing what have i got ahead of me am i organized yeah you know, so if you're organized enough then it takes the but there's one thing that's really weird is that quite often a lot of people and it you know, I remember one person, it's like every time I saw them, you know, he'd go, God, I've got no idea how you managed to do what you're doing. And it, yeah, it must be really stressful. It must be. And, you know, that was the only really stressful thing about it. With people <laughs> you, Because you think, you think, bloody hell, I've got all this sorted. Okay. You know, I'm on top of it. I've got all the files. I know what I'm doing. And then when people just tell you, bloody hell, I don't know what you're doing. You must be really stressed. Then you're thinking, well, maybe I should be. <laughs> So the stressful thing is people raising the topic and asking when actually, you know, your coping mechanism, you know, hopefully at a certain age, you work out what you can take on and how much more you you, you want to do. Um, and if you're sensible, you can ensure that your workload is what you're able to cope with. Um, yeah, so true. That sort of comes with time and age, doesn't it? Experience, I think. When one's young, rushing around like a headless chicken. And then sometimes you realise, actually, it's a bit silly, we're doing a bit too much. And then you just say, well, actually, you know, does it have to be done next week? What is the timescale on this? Um, put a bit into perspective. Um, Do you think that's boundaries or confidence? I mean, certainly I've found that it's been confidence with me and building stronger boundaries to push back, thinking, you know what, that can wait. Yes, I know you want it tomorrow, but actually it's not a priority. Do you think that is age, experience, confidence? It, I, I think it is. And so if I had the confidence that I've got now when I was 25, I think we'd have probably achieved our objectives, you know, of yeah. the million litres by now. So you do build, you know, you build confidence and you do that by doing things yourself, making mistakes. You do it by seeing the programme that I hate the most is The Apprentice. Um, on TV, oh, I quite like a bit of Alan Sugar. It amuses me. <laughs> and I just, I just sit there and I go, if the country is looking at all those people and thinking that's what I've got to be like to be in business, then it is the absolute total opposite of how I feel people should treat people, how to get the best out of people. Do, do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. it's like just because it's, 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 it's like a nineteen eighties, you know, sort of big bang city sort of you know big business corporate whatever i've got to be gordon gecko and you know shaft people and knock them over and you know whereas the reality of it is business is you know 
business can be done in a sort of firm but enjoyable way where it's not all you know being bitchy and horrible and you know yeah aggressive i i don't i mean i don't like that side where they sort of turn on each other but you know anyway so tim do you have a book or a song that you would like to recommend share with the listeners well since we've been um, trying to flog yogurt pots over the last 35 years or whatever it is we've we've now got our own part of our own festival called valley fest where we have lots of different bands coming and last year travis and goldfrap and deacon blue were going to be the headliners and hopefully you know travis and deacon blue are going to be there next year and all this sort of stuff um and the one band being having left school in 1980 um you had the sort of you know the, the sort of late 70s early 80s sort of punk bit um so there's a Scottish punk band called The Skids, um, and they, they they got a very good song called Into the Valley, which for Yo Valley is a pretty damn good song and fit. Um, and we've been trying to, well, I've been trying to um, get the band there to Valley. I was going to say, get get the Skids skidding along to you guys. I know, but it's not quite the um, target audience. Um, <laughs> <laughs> old, old punk rockers. But the good thing is that next year, the um the blockheads which was Ian Jury. Well, hold on, it's going to be this year, isn't it? 20, 2021. <laughs> Absolutely. So this year we've got Ian Jury's band, the Blockheads. Um, oh wow! Who were on their farewell tour last year, um, but of course because of all the pandemic stuff, it got cancelled. So they've decided to do another farewell tour um, in twenty twenty one. And therefore, we're looking to welcome the Blockheads um, to Valley Fest. And for me, the Blockheads and the Skids are sort of, you know, 50-50. So because I can't have Into the Valley, um, I'm going to have Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll and um, the Blockheads. And the joy is that we can all buy tickets to the Valley Fest. And I'm sure there will be details or there are details on the uh, Valley website. So... um, Tim, one thing that I wanted to ask you, because I like asking um, our guests to give a little bit of advice to people. There are obviously going to be a lot of people who are now having to rethink their career paths as a result of COVID, redundancies and all that sort of thing. How easy would it be for anyone to set up as an organic farmer? And is it commercially viable if they did? Or can it be commercial? Well, you've made it commercially viable, but for a small farm... Getting into farming is an exceedingly capital intensive business. Um, if you're an existing farmer, you know, I think the growth of regenerative organic farming will be very, very strong. And I think that the, the hopefully if the UK government sees the opportunity of our first, first um, agricultural policy since we entered the common agricultural policy. So it's probably the first agricultural policy the UK have written for nearly 50 years. If the government sees the opportunity and encourage regenerative organic farming, then as existing farmers out there, I would encourage people to look at the opportunities because if we really can farm in a way that helps reverse climate change, then farmers will be seen as part of the solution and not part of the problem, which is a really nice place to be. Really nice place to be. And that, I think, leads me on to the sort of last bit of the show, which is talking about where you've had to have the most hope 
and also a time where you have had to have patience. So, so I've have, I have four children who are marvelous children, as all parents say they are. But there is times when patience is required. Um, but my eldest daughter Lucy is called Lucy Hope. Um, oh, how and I sweet! Guess, and I guess that is a result of you know when you're starting a family, being an optimist. Hope was something that we just wanted to bestow on her, really. So, um, so I guess the hope bit would be you know starting a family. The patience bit is obviously going to be how long it's going to take to get to the, you know, my life's objective really of, 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 of helping is, I mean, Yo Valley aren't going to be processing a billion litres of organic milk, by the way, that's just, you know, that's just a pipe dream. But if Yo Valley can help encourage and nudge organic dairying to get to the billion litres, then if ever we are to achieve that, then I deserve to be patient because that result would be more than my wildest dreams really so tim where can the listeners find yo valley on the edge of the mendips there's a there's a little place called compton martin where the river yo starts it then flows out down through blagdon lake and we farm on the south shore of the lake so we welcome fifty thousand visitors to visit the garden come to the festival go on farm tours come to the the, the, the restaurants and the cafe that we have here so we're a real place um if people are passing by or whatever when we return to normality we love to show people what we're doing and how we're doing stuff or alternatively you can go to various various um social media platforms and there are information about what we do and how we do stuff or you can go to the supermarket more importantly pick up a pot of yogurt milk butter cheese um and then there's a QR code on there, then you can scan it with your phone and it takes you through to, to, to films or websites about what we do. Um, and we also put a whole load of information on the packaging, um, which I know that you know Perry from Big Fish quite well. Um, Perry is one of our fantastic guests who actually steered us to you, which was fantastic. But you also have yokens, don't you, which is sort of like tokens. We have a range of dairy products for all of the family. So to encourage families to go, do you know what? I'm going to become a Yo Valley advocate. I'm going to be, I'm going to spend my 250 or my 350 pounds a year on Yo Valley. If they do that, then they can collect the Yokens, which is soon going to be digital collection via QR codes as opposed to keying in the 14-digit number. Um, and the more Yokens you collect, the more discounts you get of coming to the Valley, getting tickets for the Valley Fest, never to be missed event next year. Or this year, we we take you to other West Country businesses in our far, digital farm shop, where you can buy, you know, you can buy scarves made, you know, from the wool from the flock of sheep on the farm. You can buy duvets from Devon made with goose down. So we we have a farm shop on our website. That the more yokens you collect, the bigger the discounts, the the better stuff you can win, and then you can come and visit us as well. And that is why Yo Valley, Tim and his team and his mom and his dad, late dad, you know, are, they're just amazing people, real movers and shakers, because what you offer, Tim, is huge. And I just love the way that you are so true to your roots, you know, all the way through the brand. It's, it's phenomenal. And you've grown it to such a large scale, still holding on to your values. 
so I would love to thank Tim so much for being on the show. It has just been such a delight. I, the, the insights that you shared are brilliant. And I certainly have learned heaps about dairy farming, the importance of organic soil and loads more. So thank you. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. I will now continue to finish my crunchy. <laughs> and um, and <laughs> tough having a half-eaten crunchy on your desk for half an hour, isn't it? <laughs> well, I've got three quarters left. Anyway, before I go, it's time for my book recommendation and quote for this episode. The book is The 5am Club by Robin Sharma. It's a story about two struggling strangers who meet an eccentric tycoon who becomes their secret mentor. It's compelling. I don't rise at 5am. I do get up early because I love the stillness, but it is a really, really good read. There's a lot that you can learn from it. And the quote is, happiness can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. And that's Albus Dumbledore, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. A huge thank you for finding the show. I hope you enjoyed the chat. Don't forget to subscribe to get the latest episode. And if you're enjoying the show, it would be truly fab if you could rate and review it and also share it with any mates who you think would enjoy it. Any book recommendations, quotes, songs can be found in the show notes and on the website too. Happy 2021. May it bring sparkle, inspiration and laughter. Hope and Patience with Amelia Rope. Join the conversation at hopeandpatience.co.uk. Find Amelia on Facebook at Hope and Patience or on Twitter and Instagram at Amelia underscore Rope.